Uh, Kyle, why do you keep banging on that? I can't understand what this thing is saying half the time. That's why you're banging on its mouth so much. I've stayed up all night working on this new voice protocol. So I'm just going to push this little button. Oh, little sound, look, those are great sound effects I've programmed. Hi, machine. How are you feeling? I feel funny. Ooh, mm. nope. Let me just. How are you doing? What are you doing? Oh, uh, way too British. Okay, let's go around not, here. Not racist at all. Hi, machine. I feel too much. That's the money voice. Yeah, that's acceptable. I could listen to that. It's almost like something that I could, I don't know, lay out and post whenever I needed a voice to appear. In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen. This monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave versus the machine. My name is Kyle. I am Dave. And I'm the machine. <laughs> Dave has been up probably for like 48 hours i am a well rested i'm i had i think six hours last night so we are at our tip top best here to talk about movies here today and we get to talk a little bit about lock stock and two smoking barrels 50 grand 80 grand 100 grand 250 whoa 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 Poor young fellas getting deeper than they could handle. I imagine that's why I'm here. Find them, torture them, and kill them. Who are we doing this for? You're doing it for me. It's all you need to know. Like one of those James Bond films. If you have a better idea how to get 500,000 in the next few days, let us know. I'm, uh, I'm excited. A movie that I don't initially hate. So, machine, <laughs> the machine is nice today. I mean, it would be interesting if we, I don't know, watched a bunch of these movies beforehand just to stock up on episodes over time. Uh, who would do that, though? Who would who, do that? Who would do that? If we were to do something like that, I could only imagine how I get to watch you on a week-to-week basis having your entire soul crumble in front of me <laughs> as you watch movies that you just do not like i'm pretty sure that's why i'm chained to this desk i'm pretty sure okay lock shock and two smoking barrels i mean this is a guy Ritchie film of course we'll get into a little bit more about his history here in a moment but what do you recall the first time you even heard of guy Ritchie? yes it was uh, snatch oh okay so snatch was your introduction yeah i definitely remember hearing about lock stock growing up Again, I've mentioned this in the past, but my theater burnt down when I was a kid. So I had no access to these these films growing up. It was not until I went to university. Yes, it was uh, definitely Snatch. I watched was probably the first film, but then I saw like Rock and Rolla and... Oh, um, after. Okay. Well, in theaters. I know I saw that yeah, one in rock, theaters. I actually liked Rock and Rolla. And I mean, then, it's Yeah, it's stupid. Yeah, but we, I mean... <laughs> getting distracted already, yeah. Um, but I, I, he also has what I've been thinking about. The perception of Guy Ritchie, and I think it's know appropriate but this perception of guy Ritchie is like he's just like this man's director right high action not many women you know just boom 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 things happening all the time and uh, what, what i struggle with a, a lot is that when i enjoy things 
that I know do have an air of, I don't know, the problematic thrown into it. Uh, I can't help but think it's like, I try to be this good person all the time, and yet I'm still drawn to these things that may not be the, the best. Mm. So does that make me a bad person, Dave? I'm well, asking you to psychoanalyze me here. Well, you are a bad person. Oh, good. Okay, great. built a fucking robot Let me that's going to destroy the world. <laughs> okay, okay. It's like... <laughs> It's like no one has made a mistake in their past, Dave. <laughs> Move on. Guy Ritchie, the British Michael Bay. No, that's not fair. That's not fair yeah. either. No, Guy Ritchie Although, actually. Yeah. I mean, I know you really hate Michael Bay, but I think Michael Bay has also made a couple of good films in his past too. Well, not that uh, we've spoken a lot about this upcoming film we're about to watch, but it, it makes me reflect as we, as you brought up with Snatch that, yeah, as Michael Bay was becoming Michael Bay, I liked Bad Boys and yeah. The Rock. And then he just decided that he could make millions of dollars making the same movie. This is something that we repeatedly come to as this machine. Thank you, machine, new voice. How revisiting a whole year, revisiting 1999, and really trying to put myself back into mm. that time frame about like, oh, okay, so I was coming at with this life experience, being young, immature still, even though I probably didn't think of myself in that way. And being able to overlook so many different things that as an adult and who has had way more life experience and been introduced to a whole bunch of different outlooks, I'm like, whoa, this is nothing that this does not hold up anymore. Yeah. I, having found this movie after Snatch, I wonder how awesome it would have been if I was still like mm -hmm. 20 or 20, whatever it is. And I got yeah. to see this in the theater. But yeah, the, those are weird perspectives trying to figure out how to get rid of what I think I know now. Mm -hmm. versus what I thought I knew then. Right. Is that the right, right way to put yeah, it? Yeah, no, no, fair <clears throat> enough. Well, we'll get into more on that. Let's do this. Let's go thank some sponsors in a pre-recorded message, and then when we return, we'll jump into talking about Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. I'm ready. Hi there, everyone. It's just me, Kyle, again. Dave is inconsolable. You'll hear why later in the episode when he discovers what we're going to be watching next week. But uh, before I have to go back and rub his back because he insists on it, let me talk to you about this week's sponsors. First and foremost, Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network powered by ATB. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. This episode is brought to you by Park Power, a provider of electricity and natural gas in Alberta that offers low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. Park Power has low overhead, and chances are you'll save money if you switch. You can find out how much money you would save by visiting parkpower.ca and plugging your numbers into the Alberta Energy Savings Calculator. If you decide to switch, it's easy. Nothing changes about your service, only the price you pay. Learn more at parkpower.ca. This week, Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine is also brought to you by NorQuest College. They've prepared a message for you. I'm going to go and, I guess, help Dave. I'm just trying to find my spare bottle of chloroform. Uh, anyways, here's NorQuest College. Your next career move is right around the corner, and NorQuest College is here to help. 
Our new Career Moves Professional Development Program will help you transition to new job opportunities. Funded by the Future Skills Center, we will provide one-on-one -on -one coaching, self-assessments, skill development and training, and up to $2,000 in available tuition credit. Our focus is your success. Make your next move. Apply today at norquest.ca slash career moves. All right. Well, there we go. We got to, uh, got our action on, so, so to speak. A lot of sound bites here, Kyle. I know. It's like, that's all I know how to speak in. I'm going to push this button here. Wait for this receipt to print out. Oh, the machine has also informed me here via receipt, even though I have changed its uh, vocoder. Peter Frampton is alive. Uh, technical term. That's yep. a technical term. Yep. Uh, that we're changing up the format a bit here this week. So we're mm -hmm. going to do things in a bit of a different order. It, it's it's we, rules. It says I'm, I'm we just... obey. We obey. Bow down, bitches. So Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels was released on August 28th, 1998 in the UK, but then came over to America on March 7th, 1999. Mm. Other major releases that came out that same week were Cruel Intentions, starring Sarah Michelle Gellar, Reese Witherspoon, Selma Blair, and Ryan Phillippe, written and directed by Roger Cumble. Hopefully we don't have to watch Ooh, that. Yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a bullet that we, we escaped there, isn't Definitely it? Definitely dodged that. Uh, also that came out this week was Analyze This, starring oh. Lisa Kudrow, Billy Crystal, and Robert De Niro, written by Kenneth Lonergan, Peter Tolan, and Harold Ramis, and also directed by Harold Ramis. Mm. Weirdly, I have never seen Analyze This, even though it is... Uh, I thought it had a bit of a moment <laughs> when it initially came out. I mean, it has a sequel, so I mean... It's pretty it's good. something. Yeah, I, I think I watched that because it was sort of post Goodfellas uh, mm -hmm. satire on the, on the. I think that's analysis, right? De Niro and Billy Crystal. Yeah, is, yeah, yeah. Uh, Billy Crystal's the uh, psychiatrist. <clears throat> yeah. yeah, I think I enjoyed it. Although it made so. me feel like De Niro at the time could only be a gangster. Yeah, I mean, to a degree, it's still true. <laughs> he's funnier now because he doesn't give a fuck. Like, have you seen him on the roasts? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, he he just doesn't care anymore. I have seen him on Saturday Night Live and. For as good of an actor as, as he block. is, he is bad doing live <laughs> television. Um, sorry, Mr. Jammer, I love you. So, Lockstock is currently rated 8.2 on IMDb, Ooh. 66 on Metacritic. Mm. And then when you go over to Rotten Tomatoes, the critics give it 75%. Okay. And then the audience, the general the users, public, yeah. the users give it 93%. Ooh. Yeah, we're hit, So, I would definitely hitter. say, like, the general public has a much higher, I don't know, love for this movie than what critics, quote unquote critics do. I wouldn't even say much higher. That's not a bad gap. No, no, 10, it's not 10, like, 15 um, points is reasonable. The last two Star Wars films have oh. been really interesting to see where, you know, whatever, like, I'm whatever re I'm revoking your, is, your Disney fan Whatever status. episode eight is oh, called, God, which I have now Kyle. completely forgotten. You've lost all credibility on the uh, films. It was like 90 something percent critics, 50% Oh. For general audience. Wow. And then that flipped for the last film. So. Star Wars is different though. I know. A Star Trek too. Fanboy thing is Don't tainted. get in the middle of it. Just don't get in the middle of it. I'm going to take a stand here. No, um, <clears throat> continue. Actually, the machine told me the other day that its favorite Star Wars is the Christmas special. The Arthur's Bay. Lockstock is available on DVD or Blu-ray. You can also buy or rent it on iTunes. Uh, you can rent it via YouTube or Google Play Movies. And... It can also be streamed in Canada on Netflix. 
Woo. I believe this is the first movie we've come across that is actually available on Netflix, which is still blows my mind that most of these things are not available via streaming somewhere. If we least. lived near a river, we might have been able to catch a me- message in a bottle. Oh, yes. No, never mind. Let's keep moving. Because of water. <clears throat> uh, its budget was $1.2 million. Amazing. Uh, it may, it uh, which is $1.7 million R current day. How am I supposed to say it? Current? <laughs> because of inflation, that's actually equal to $1.7 million today. Uh, it's opening. Now, bear in mind this number I'm about to give you. Go back to Still Crazy. Remember Still Crazy, that movie no. that we had to see? Uh, this is just the UK because it was released in August. It opened to $143,000. Okay. But over time, it grossed in total 28 million bucks. That's not bad. No, that's great return. I, I'd even hope if you, bigger, but... even if they doubled their budget for marketing, they handily made their budget back. That's $40 million today. Uh, this movie stars Nick Moran as Eddie, Jason Fleming as Tom, Dexter Fletcher as Soap. And Jason Statham as Bacon. The birth. Yeah. The, the birth. The birth of Jason Statham. Was he a diver still? What, what, did, what are some of the memes? Backup dancer. Like they all came out. He was a dancer. Yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. the machine is going to tell us that. Oh, here's another receipt that's printing yeah. out. Thank sorry, you, sorry. Mr. Machine. I just love Jason Statham. Nick Moran. Nick Moran was born on December 23rd, 1969. His first movie role was the 1989 German film Hard Days, Hard Nights. Also, the name of my autobiography. Oh, God. Uh, from there, he would appear in a bunch of TV series and short films. Uh, this movie was really his breakout role, though. He would be able to use the success of this film to make a career. But if I'm being honest, and this is the machine talking, this is not Kyle saying this. The robot said, if I'm being honest. Okay, uh, yeah. I get no respect. There's not a whole lot of stuff that is familiar on his resume, except for his guest spot on CSI Miami. Other than that, it's movies I've never heard of in my entire life. Uh, That is until he appeared in a bit part in the last two Harry Potter films. The last film you might have seen him in is Not By the Book, a UK comedy crime thriller. Uh, There are some upcoming films that you might be able to see him in, but high on my list, and this is now Kyle speaking again, is Emperor of Broadway, the dramatization of Eugene O'Neill refusing to use blackface and cast an African-American actor to play Emperor Jones. That's Nick Moran. Uh, Jason Fleming. Jason was born on September 25th, 1966. His early career was filled with a bunch of English television roles, although he was also on two episodes of The Young Indiana Jones. His first film role was the 1994 version of The Jungle Book, the first time that Disney did a live-action version of that film. Do you remember There's that live-action? Live, there was a live-action in 1994, yes. I remember watching this. I don't remember being any good whatsoever. Do you think it's on Disney Plus? It has to be. I'm going to be looking Search for, for it and see if it is. I, I, I'd actually be interested. If, if it's not there, I want to know why it's not there. As a young kid, because when I was uh, 94, I would have been, what, 11? I would have been 11. I was like, yeah, love the bare necessities. Let's do this. Live action. <laughs> not, not at all what it was. Live action Jungle Book. So Jason Fleming would then go on to roles in such movies as Rob Roy, Indian Summer, and most importantly for Dave, Spice World. <laughs> oh, God. I, I love Spice World. <laughs> I'm not afraid to admit it here on Mike. After Lockstock, he would continue working and appearing in such varied films as The Red Violin, Snatch, Clueless, 
and The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, where he played Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. Uh, he would also appear with Jason Statham again in Transporter 2 before going on to be in things like Stardust, Kick-Ass, The Social Network, Hannah, and X-Men First Class. When we know a little bit more about the history of this movie we're talking about, we'll know why he was in a lot of those movies. Mm. Uh, for North American audiences, he may be most recognized as Lord Harwood from the TV show Pennyworth. Currently, he has six films in various forms of production. The one that will be the next available for you to see is Creation Stories, directed by none other than Nick Moran, who we just mentioned, and featuring Jason Isaacs and Rupert Everett. Um, its description is the unforgettable tale of infamous Creation Records label head Alan McGee and of how one written-off young Glaswegian upstart rose to irrevocably change the face of British culture. You pronounced Glaswegian. I know. Fascinating. How like long I, did you practice I've that? I've been practicing all morning. <laughs> <laughs> Wish you had done it in like a Celtic accent, but then yeah, we'd no. probably get, uh, we'd be in hey, trouble. No. No. Dexter Fletcher. Dexter was born January 31st, 1966. He also appeared in a bunch of TV shows early in his career, although starting much younger than the other two we've mentioned. His first role was when he was nine years old in Bugsy Malone, which came out in 1976. He would also appear in The Long Good Friday, The Elephant Man, and The Man Who Knew Too Little. After Lockstock, he would be in Topsy Turvy, the miniseries Band of Brothers, Layer Cake, Kick-Ass, and Muppets Most Wanted. The only upcoming movie is the short film The Agency, uh, which means you'll probably never see it. <laughs> the Agency is a modern and stylish take on middle-class female empowerment amidst the social subculture described collectively as the ladies who lunch. By the way, nice little uh, side tangent here. Uh, the other podcast I do called Putting It Together, there is a Broadway show called Company, and that is the name of one of the songs. No one cares. You gotta, uh, yeah, no, you got to plug it. You got to plug that shit. Does anyone still wear a hat? Also, don't forget to like, comment, and subscribe <laughs> for <laughs> Kyle and Dave versus the machine. Um, <clears throat> Jason Statham. He's the big name nowadays. Back then, he was a nothing. He was a nobody. But Jason was born July 26th, 1967. I think that makes him a fellow cancer with me. Mm-hmm. Although I'm not quite sure because all that is bullshit. While he has been in a few music videos before this as a dancer, beautiful. Lockstock was his first film role. He'd reteam with director Guy Ritchie for Snatch a couple of years later, but he would become an action star with The Transporter and its sequels, plus the Crank series. But he'd also do The Italian Job, Collateral, The Bank Job, which um, I didn't realize how much I loved Jason Statham, I don't think, until I started listing out some of these movies. He's awesome. Uh, he would show off his comedy skills in Spy, but then he would go on to join the Fast and Furious franchise, Amazing. starting with an after credit sequence in Furious 6, hashtag Justice for Han. He's been in He's most back. of the other films of that franchise, plus the spinoff, Hobbs and Shaw. Amazing. Although I think... I think actually the official name of that is Fast and Furious Presents Hobbs and Shaw. That movie's amazing. <laughs> he holds a helicopter with a chain, it? man. Captain America did that too. Well, you know, he wasn't The Rock. No, that's true. That is true. Uh, next up is another Guy Ritchie film called Cash Truck. I thought you were going to say something else. Oh, Because you, you held that cast and then I thought you were going to go traded. Oh, but, uh, no. But no, let's keep going. The plot follows <laughs> H a cold and mysterious character working at a cash truck company responsible for moving hundreds of millions of dollars around Los Angeles each week. This film will also have Josh Hartnett in it. 
As an aside, he's also going to be in the next Kevin Hart comedy called The Man from Toronto, where they get mixed up for one another and comedy shenanigans ensue. So, just quickly, I just watched Masterminds, which is, I think, the one with Zach Galifianakis and uh, Kristen Wiig. And, uh, I have not heard, I don't even know if I know this movie. So, there's a, it's, it's not a popular comedy. Yeah, right. <clears throat> but it's apparently based on a true story where a security truck driver decides, uh, or is conned or, or whatever, joins mm -hmm. a group of people to uh, steal money from the bank. But the two things that's fascinating is that it sounds like Jason Statham is going to do a Guy Ritchie and Jason Statham are going to do a hard-edged version of that. But also, uh, one of the key bits in it, not to give too much away, is that Zach Galifianakis is using a fake name and turns out to be the name of the assassin that's sent to kill him. Ah. And they end up... Uh, mixing things up. It's pretty funny. And that's where the comedy happens. Well... Well, you describing that was making me laugh, so... <laughs> That's about the reaction I got <laughs> yeah. uh, watching it. Jason Statham is uh, great. Underappreciated. I will say this. I think that a lot of the quote-unquote action stars get um, a raw deal a little bit because I think they're only seen as like, oh, whatever. They just run around and jump over things and things explode. But uh, I find that like a lot of them, like even Sylvester Stallone going like way back in the day, but Jason Statham and um, there's another person I'm thinking of that I'm now blanking on. Arnold? Well, Arnold to a bit, but I don't want to wrap him up in what, what, what my point I was about <laughs> no, to make. No, you're going to talk think, about acting. But no, I was going <laughs> to talk about acting, where I think that Jason Statham, yes, he knows that he can play a certain role oh, really well, and he leans into that because people give him money for it. But the guy is really funny, too. Like, in yes. certain comedies, he is really good. And I, what I love about that is especially the roles where he pokes fun at himself, because nothing is worse than a self-serious actor who thinks what they do is, like, the most important thing in the world. Uh, when he came out of... Uh... Snatch, and he was, I think the first action movie was the Jet Li one. I can't remember what it was, but I think he started learning some form of Kung Fu and stunts too. Mm -hmm. uh, but then he put himself in the boxes. He was going to make a lot more money doing that. And, he, you know, it looks like a mean, tough guy. But I always think about Lockstock, that opening sequence. Not that we've watched it recently, no. but it sticks out in my mind when I talk about Statham. He's just got that smooth talking, you know, that charm. Yeah, there's something about him. I, yeah. I can't figure out what it is. He's both like, I don't know, super intimidating almost like a dad, kind of attractive, I guess, but also is like, he will totally kick my ass if I, if I step uh, in, the, in the wrong way. I have a friend in Toronto. If you ever listen to this, Patrick, uh, I'm shouting, I'm, I'm calling you out, but he hates Statham. I oh, don't know how we oh. remain friends. And he had boycotted every Statham movie until I uh, forced him to watch, is this Spy with uh, yeah. Melissa McCarthy? Yeah. I forced him to watch uh, Spy and it, and it broke him. Oh, because good, good. Yeah, uh, he just makes I, fun of it. It's amazing. The Bank Jeez. Job is actually a great movie too. If you haven't seen it, that is the movie I would actually give to people who think that he's a bad actor because that one is like just a throwback to like a 1970s heist movie and it's great. This movie was written and directed by Guy Ritchie. This is his very first like feature length film. Guy was born September 10th, 1968. He had made a short film called The Hard Case in 1995. Uh, for his first feature uh, would be this movie and he knew that he would need some funding. So this is according to Wikipedia, but he did this by contacting Peter Morton. You know who Peter Morton is by no. any chance? Morton, here's a who. I didn't. It's <laughs> <laughs> a parody that we're writing. This uh, name did not ring any bells for me either, but he just so happens to be the co-founder of the Hard Rock Cafe. Um, so he calls him up, sees if he would help finance it, and uh, I won't 
get into it super far here, but by the sounds of it, his mother and father, this is Guy Ritchie's mother and father were married to minor members of the royal family for a bit in both their lives. Of course they were. So I think he had money. <laughs> like he grew up rich. So uh this was not like a a case of like, oh, I'm a scrappy guy calling this guy up. It was like, no, my parents know him and I'm gonna we, call we him. We know up. some people. Yeah. Anyway, so Peter Morton's nephew is Matthew Vaughn. Matthew Vaughn would go on to direct Kick Ass and uh, yeah. X Men First Kingsman, Class, which we mentioned yeah. here. But the Kingsman, yeah, is the big franchise he's working on here now. Matthew Vaughn agreed to help finance Guy Ritchie's film, and this has started their friendship. So this was like a combination of Matthew Vaughn being the producer, Guy Ritchie being the director, um, and like I said, he, Matthew Vaughn would go on to have his own career uh, himself uh, because this film was a hit. Uh, Guy would go on to be able to direct Snatch, Revolver, Rock and Rolla, Sherlock Holmes with Robert Downey Jr., and The Man from Uncle. And while he was married to Madonna for a while, he would direct her in a bit of a vanity project called Swept Away, skip over which is awful. It's <laughs> so bad. Uh, he's had a bit of a weird pivot in recent years. He's directed the King Arthur film that nobody remembers, as well as the live-action version of Aladdin. Uh, most recently, you may have seen The Gentleman, which was said to be the return of his signature style, uh, but also a bit racist, but also fun. So that excuses it. You know what's interesting is uh, I haven't seen The Gentleman, but now that you're talking about how him and Matthew Vaughn are related, I see it in their work. Mm -hmm. And the, and when I saw the ad for, uh, what's the new, Gentleman, I thought it was a new Kingsman spinoff. I th thank you. I honestly, right? we mentioned it so hard because there is actually, so there's The Gentleman, which Guy Ritchie just released here. What's uh, What is the date right now? <coughs> uh, yeah, it got released like a month ago. Right. Uh, but there's also The Kingsman coming out, directed by Matthew Vaughn, which but is a spinoff of there's another the Kingsman. Kingsman movie. Yeah, but it's okay. a prequel. So it's like of course it happening is. back. Anyways, whatever. You it doesn't gotta, matter. You gotta go back. You always gotta go back. Do you though? I, do, what, do, what, do I have to like start yelling at prequels and why I think they're the worst things? Well, Even worse than sequels. I we, think. Yeah, we won't go into Star Wars because then we'll get incensed. Mm. I'll, I'll just quickly add this to, just to piss you off. In a Tarantino-esque way, <laughs> I was really enjoying Kingsman. Uh -huh. And I admit the way the uh, church scene is shot is incredible. Jesus, like you didn't need to do so oh, much. Oh, I see, I see. Yeah. I I keep hearing that that criticism of how that church scene in the first Kingsman Mill is so shocking and violent. Maybe I'm just the desensitized one more so than I think I am. You're like humming a, a bright tune. <laughs> not, not so much of that, but maybe it's just my thing too with digital blood, which that mm. scene has so much of, where it's like, oh, this is totally not real mm. whatsoever. If they had used like blood packs or something like that then i would maybe have been like oh whoa this is getting super gruesome but well, for me it's just like nope that was not a real bullet that just went through that person's face i think for me it wasn't the visual thing because mm. you know we've watched other movies of uh, in our lifetime with visual you know grossness it's just the uh, cruel seemed, intentions yeah it just seemed so have we watched cruel so we Who knows? Uh, we <laughs> fucking fourth wall so uh I think I just, I, I haven't watched it again, but I just felt like the way it was ramping up, it was, just, you know. Yeah. Anyways, this is not a podcast about Kingsman. Yeah. Uh, next up, as you know, uh, a guy which he's going to direct Cash Truck. So the plot description of Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels is this. It's the story of a heist involving a self-confident young card shark 
who loses 500,000 pounds to a powerful crime lord in a rigged game of three-card brag. To pay off his debts, he and his friends decide to rob a small-time gang who happened to be operating out of the flat next door. Okay. Oh, I need a nap. Yeah, we, uh, we have spent a bit of time talking about this. <laughs> Let's start here. What do you love about this movie? What did you like about this movie? Wait, have we watched it? Yeah. Oh. We've already watched it. Oh, okay, okay. I don't know. I'm trying to separate from nostalgia. I just, I just love this yeah, movie. Yeah, let's, let's, let's break this down in both ways, though. What did you enjoy about this movie today in the year 2020? I think that it remains authentic to itself. I know that's a very annoying way to put it, but it's, it, it still feels gritty. It's still, like, I love that it's low budge, and it looks low budge, but it works. It doesn't feel low budge in the sense that, like, you lose contact with the material. I love uh, the way it's shot and that now... It's a stereotypical Guy Ritchie thing. A lot of great, but you know, even for a budget like that, the intro scene with the slow-mo, the way he'll use uh, uh, changing the rate to introduce character, that stuff's great, mm -hmm. voiceover mm -hmm. stuff. It's funny. I am also a fan of the British humor sense of being really cynical in humor, so I think I just enjoy this type of humor where it, it tends to get bloody. And the characters are fun. I, I love that the four of them, it sounds like they actually have some kind of relationship. They actually... Our friends on screen, the the chemistry is incredible between the four uh, main folks, and then uh, who doesn't love a good twisted heist? Yeah, I mean the whole thing. Is I'm a, just I'm so a big fan of heist movies, anyways. Darn I just enough. like coming up with the plan, the execution of it. Something goes wrong, obviously, and then how do they figure that out to eventually, hopefully, get the prize at the end of the day? I agree with everything you just said there, Dave. I think that what I appreciate about it now is that it, there is still this intensity and i think because of the fact that it's such a low budget film i mean in comparison to what we get nowadays actually even back in 1999 it would have been considered super low budget too is that that little scrappiness it's like i can see that the filmmakers are just using every little bit of money that they had to execute this in the best possible way shortest time possible as clean as mm -hmm. possible yeah. and the fact that he i mean again comes from money too and uh, apparently, this short film actually made itself around a lot of the UK celebrities, I guess, for lack of a better word, which is why you have Sting, why you have Vinnie Jones, say, who yeah. come into this movie. Like, this movie, like we said, cost $1.2 million. Like, that's... Yeah, <laughs> that's less money than what probably Vinnie Jones made playing soccer for one season. Yeah, in the, in the, in the movie world, that's yeah. like pennies, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so that's cool. Um, what do you think, though? Like, that's nowadays but going back to 1999 let's say you had seen this movie in 1999 what would you think you would have been attracted to then or do you think you would have liked this movie in 1999 yeah i think i would have loved it i think in the way that we talked about uh, payback i have always been a sucker for that grit and mm -hmm. fun mindless violence you know as long as there's a fun comedic lightheartedness but murdering people uh <laughs> Generally translates well on screen for that uh, escapism, if you will. And I also love um, that the casting, you know, with the four guys, A, that they're all so fundamentally different. Uh, yeah, even as they evolve through their character things, you know, in that short, I think the movie's only like an hour, hour and 20 minutes. Or, it's not no, very long. It was, uh, I think it's an hour and 40. I oh, think is it that long? It oh. Before the credits come up. Um, so, that, well, that just, I was enjoying it too much. I thought it was moving by really quick. Um, yeah. I think like Payback, I would have sat down in this theater 
and uh, and just been blown away by this idea of uh, also it, it sh- maybe it should have even just been in black and white. You know, with the tone that it had, it, it just had that kind of. Uh, well, that's a good segue because I have no qualms with like the actual direction of this movie and uh, the way that it's filmed, that sort of thing. If we're if we're gonna get into like like the the weeds of like criticism and being things like ah, this is something that I wish was just done a little bit better. Uh, I think we're going to be a little bit in disagreement here, but I really hate the color grading of this film. Oh yeah, well, like well, a lot. You hate it. Uh, <laughs> if they could take off the and I apologize to my mother, but the piss yellow filter that they apparently decided to go with, I don't know. It just is. It kind of looks ugly, unfortunately. This movie, and I feel like yes, if you've done it black and white or done what. Guy Ritchie would do in later films was just like, let's oversaturate this image as much as we possibly can. I'd be like, okay, cool, stylish, whatever. This type of filter that they decided where it's just yellows and browns, it, for me, it's just ugly to look at for an hour and a half. Do you get the sense that that's intent or budgetary? Like, it, it almost feels to me like mm. this is shot actually on a 16 millimeter. Possibly. You know, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, that might have just been the intent in poster. I have no idea. Of, of course, I'm not. Guy Ritchie, or I don't know, did he do his own cinematography? Did his own was he his, his oh, own? Oh, I should look that film? up. I I'm pretty sure he had his own cinematographer um, though. At one point, time million. Who knows? It might have been his flat mate. Um, <laughs> <clears throat> no, but they uh, went up in the lorry together. <laughs> and then, as we saw with the, uh, still crazy. Um, I think the British idea, particularly in this coming up era, of what color grading and mm-hmm. what appeals well, to them is a little bit different than that's that. actually a great comparison. I mean, not that they have anything the same as far as subject matter goes, but just comparing two British films that we have watched that have come out here in 1999, a thousand times to one, I'm going to pick to watch this movie that we just watched and ever to have to sit through still crazy ever again in my entire life. For content. Right? And because it's like, oh, okay, so we, there is some grittiness that's going on here. We can still be super funny. We can still tell a coherent story and a complicated story, really. Uh, a criticism I was thinking of actually as I was watching the movie, which I ended up being like, this isn't really a criticism. I was, it really is being too nitpicky. About halfway through, it's like, I don't even know if I do know what's going on mm-hmm. right now mm-hmm. because there is essentially four different sets of characters we have to kind of keep in contact with and understand how they all relate to each other. And there's still like revelations that happen about how these people are actually related to these people or related to these people. It's like a snake eating its own tail uh, at the end of it, right? Where it's like the top mob boss eventually gets undone by the most unlikely people in the world only because of these series of events that got thrown out there just for a rigged card game. I don't want this to be a nitpick because payback is similar, but the way it starts at some point I'm thinking like, why the fuck, what were they thinking in that poker room in the first place? There's no motivation or explanation why the four of them even need or want this money. Particularly, I mean, the chef turns out to be probably a psychopath, but oh yeah, but they're all well, sitting I think, there I think grinding. A, there is time. a subtext there for his dad's bar, but I don't think his dad's bar is doing badly. What, the guys? I thought yeah. that was just from the mob boss. I, I mean, I, I, yeah. I thought it was uh, Hatchet Harry that just wanted the block. But yeah, I, he's trying I to like, like, strong arm him a bit. The only thing that I remember them mentioning is that they were going to make a hundred, you know, 125. And I, I almost got the, the way it was uh, worded. It made me feel like they were putting a hundred grand in to come out with 125. In reflection, I think they meant 125 each for yes. the 25 buy-in. But even that, like, you know, so there's, 
I, that was the only thing that was kind of itching me because by the end, and the whole thing becomes this incredible clusterfuck, and oh, yeah. everybody's just heaped onto each other. I kind of went back to the beginning. I was like, how did this start again? Like, yeah. why, why are they even involved? Well, you bring up, you brought up Tarantino there a, a moment ago. And the movie that this somewhat reminds me of is Pulp Fiction in a way. Again, totally different styles. Like, they're not similar in that way, but similar in that there's like five different storylines really that's going on. And it's like halfway through the movie, you might be a little bit confused. And then it's like, oh, okay, you see how these are all starting to fit together. And how one person screwing over one person really hurts this other person over here and how they all kind of tumble and have basically a bunch of people die in the, in the process of one person kind of making a mistake. I think too, it's clearly built for a British audience. So there are a lot of implied stereotypes and characters. So we'll find them funny because they're lampooned and played by great character actors. Mm -hmm. But you know, if you got two guys coming dressed the way the Northern uh, thugs I mean, maybe for a British audience, there would have been more subtext to what that meant and what these people are capable of or what, you know, mm -hmm. the stereotype of somebody that looks like. But uh, for us, I just, you know, I just like the perm. And well, that's the thing too. Like this is true about something like Payback or Film Noirs, which is I just enjoy the characters where it's like, oh, I can just hang out with this person more. I want to know more about Hatchet Harry. I want to know more about the bishop. Um, anytime a movie just makes dumb, like pseudonyms for everyone, I'm like, I'm down for this. Well, isn't this <laughs> oh, I know how they got this stupid name. Well, just to attack you personally, Kyle, isn't that how we get to prequels? Right? <laughs> I, I Wouldn't know, you I know, watch I know. a Hatchet Harry? Well, maybe not Hatchet Harry. Well, maybe a Hatchet Harry movie. Maybe I'll watch it. Maybe I'll watch Hatchet <laughs> Harry. beat a guy prequel. to death with a giant, uh, dildo. That's right. That's Where right. does that come from? Right? What was his family like? How did he grow up? Yeah, like yeah. one day, he, no. <laughs> I, I, I will say though, too, like this is. Now the second movie that we've watched that someone it, got beat to death with a dildo. <laughs> oh, sorry. <clears throat> <laughs> yeah, it was like this one as well as Office Space. It's it's really weird deleted scene, scene that they don't that you don't normally see. No, uh, I, I was gonna say that deals with the porn industry in, in a way. Like we watched Eight Millimeter, which we did not like very much, and then there's this movie which has that subtext too. So do you think? This is me a little bit like leading the witness, I know. Uh, do you think this is something to be said about 1999? Like, is this a trend that we're going to start to see in more movies, do you think, about the, um, I don't know, pornography and, and that sort of lifestyle, for lack of a better word, being synonymous with like the underworld? I wonder, as an decrepit old man now in 2020, and looking back at the, uh, the how the last 30, 40 years have uh, evolved or whatever existed you know the advent of the internet and the so-called democratization of pornography might actually reflect in the way it starts to appear in mass media so before i mean we see an eight millimeter in here there and we still have them somehow like in on calgary streets there are shops that apparently people will walk physically into and they have right. blocked out blinds and either uh, purchase material whatever is it that people do in those shops you know, from my memory, the internet and public access to pornography is sort of like 95 to 2000 before it became what it is today, whatever it is now. Yeah. Um, and I, it's web 2.0. Now I'm, uh, and then I, I'm reflecting on that too, because I watched this uh, sort of like a spiritual guru on YouTube and somebody asked him about sort of the porn industry and, and masturbation. And he goes, uh, you know, something like he looked into it and it was like over 70% of the full content of the internet is pornography. Mm. 
And so he made the illusion of like, when you eat bad food, you get diarrhea. So if you consume bad information, you know, you yeah, shit yeah. yourself. So garbage in, garbage out. And I wonder if there's something to that where, whether it's intentional or unintentional, maybe we're seeing this leak, like even the violence and stuff that we're starting to see in these themes. Again, as much as I bash on uh, capitalism, I mean, this internet thing is also an interesting uh, change in our sociology. Maybe there's begin to see this crack where well, we're getting too much information. You, you didn't know this, Dave, but uh, this is actually kind of an interesting segue. I, I was going to leave actually to the end, but I think it's we should bring it up now. Peter emailed us, which you can also email us at Kyle and Dave versus the machine at gmail.com. I tried to go for a longer one. It would not let me. Uh, but Kyle and Dave versus the machine at gmail.com. We should have done double ats. That's right. So Peter says like, uh, enjoyed your conversation about eight millimeter, but something that I was struck with was the entire idea about how porn is looked at nowadays versus what it's looked at in 1999. Now we can see as horrific of stuff that eight millimeter was kind of vilifying in seconds and people as young as five, six, seven years old are being introduced to pornography at very young ages. And I don't know if we've truly understood what that psychology is going to do with them growing up. He goes on, but that was the part that I wanted to pull out of the email itself. And I think it is damaging when we do have that access, not that I think that necessarily all porn is bad, but definitely when it is so easily readily available and we already are like complaining about how real relationships are so hard to attain when that is what your, you know, the intake is, is like, this is what love or this is what satisfaction is when this is not what committed relationships, this is not what that actually is. Is that superficiality that we start to internalize? I don't know. I think there's a lot that's wrapped up into that. And I think that, and they say that the lock sock is really focused on so much, but I think it's, it's part and parcel of this idea, right? Where it does surround the entire narrative. I mean, yeah, uh, I think pornography back porn. in 1999 was like, we were going to the, the strippers or we were paying for women. And now that has kind of been transferred in the year 2020 to be like, I click a button or I subscribe to this cam girl or I can pay a thousand dollars and have them do whatever I ask them to do. Number one, what that same, I can't remember his name. Anyways, uh, he makes the, the point before even getting into garbage in, garbage out that like, you know, not specifically pornography, but like sex, masturbation, sort of like all this stuff is natural because we have physical body. So it's not meant to vilify, like these are not meant to pass sort of religious prudishness mm -hmm. that you should never accept anything um but on a broader scale even beyond pornography the democratization of information in general uh, definitely has an effect you, you know talking about how everybody seems to complain that they can't find true love i feel like that's increasing at least in volume than it used to in mm -hmm. the 90s i mean everybody complains about being single but there's still a culture where you still have to physically bump into somebody and interact with them but as we go into this more, that's I, why I, I just stayed in the bookstore <laughs> for 12 hours until they asked hey, me, please, you have to leave or I'm, buy something. Not you got mail, but there are, there are movies yeah. about that too. You can bump into people, but no, but, uh, but even in bookstores, I mean, if you're going to bump into somebody that mm -hmm. reads as much as you do, or at least fake reads as much to bump into, but, um, whoa, Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> oh my goodness. You're enlightened. You're, you're so woke. But yeah, that, that social structures change so much. I don't want to vilify it necessarily. And mm -hmm. when we get into this, 
next conversation about whether we can control it, filter it, uh, then you get into bigger problems of like authoritarian, uh, authoritarian um, and dictatorship type of mentalities where I know what's like, so for example, with right. my son, it's like, I know that's not good for you. I don't know. I mean, a kid that's growing up in this era, if they're growing up with an iPad or a computer in their hand, that might actually be a benefit. I don't know. You know, in the old days, you're like, well, it better be a fucking pencil and you better do your math. And mm-hmm. yeah, so I don't, I don't know how to make judgments about any of this stuff. Yeah, I know. That's, that's. It's evolving. I, well, I, I learned in a logic class that I Ooh, took in, in, in uh, university. I failed logic in university. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. Continue. Um, Surprising. That is, shocking. That is shocking because <laughs> you, <laughs> no, but using that's a slippery slope as an argument is actually a terrible argument to make because you're not actually using any evidence to back up your claims. Like, right. oh, that might be a slippery slope to X, Y, and Z. Right. So I, just, I don't want to say that, which is like, oh, this is obviously making a slippery slope and this is going to wor- uh, lead to world destruction. Well, we all know it's the machine. It's the machine. It's going <clears> to <throat> be leading to world destruction. So it's Kyle's fault. Uh, it is my fault. It's everyone's fault. So yeah, I think you're right in that regard. It's like, who knows? Like, I, we need so much more research. This is why people get so frustrated with like diets all the time. It's like, have absolutely no carbs. Well, actually, some carbs are okay. No sugar whatsoever. It's like, well, a little bit of sugar is fine. Like, they, there's always like this conflicting uh, messaging and stuff out there, right? It's like, don't ever eat a potato again in your life and whatever. It's going to come out next week or something like that. Uh, whatever Goop tells me to do is is don't how I follow my life. Don't do that, Kyle. We're already <laughs> so far away from this movie. This is gonna um, turn into a full out. No, I'm I'm trying I'm trying to bring it back here, which is that what this reminds me of is this whole idea about violence. Violence in video games is supposed to like create mass murderers, and there was like the lobbies that came out and slapped the parental advisory language on on CDs and stuff like that. And, and I guess what I'm, I'm fascinated by is that Guy Ritchie was definitely criticized for this early in his life. This excessive violence that we're seeing, do you think it has ultimately been proven that there hasn't been an effect? Of course. Well, proven in that I accept that. Mm-hmm. I mean, proven is a weird word now yeah. anyways, because... Where's your evidence? I need at least three... Yeah, nobody gets citations even to the tell citations me. Citations are so biased. But to the violence part, I'll say this. I mean, we were, I think we were talking. Yeah, we were at a uh, at a photography exhibition show several months ago, right? Uh, <clears throat> at least weeks ago. <laughs> and talking about galleries and classic art. And, you know, if you want to talk about the effect of the visualization of graphic violence on a society, I mean, look at classical art since its inception some of the images that we worship as the greatest murals we look into it i mean there's like lopped off babies' heads mm-hmm, and people mm-hmm. being impaled and you know uh, and of course there's a curated version that'll be in a book where it's going to be you know like the bust of venus etc but the, most of the stuff they go into an actual museum your kid maybe ought not to look at it because there's stuff that will induce nightmares uh, but then the reality is uh, yeah like saturn eating his own son's head right and I was watching uh, YouTube videos with my son about uh, old Greek mythology. And uh, if you like mythology, in the old days, n- nobody was like an American hero. They all fucking died. Oh my gosh. <laughs> well, yeah, like you go into like, re- like I, not even the sanitized Greek mythology that you are normally introduced to first, oh, but it's like, 
mothers having sex with their sons, yep. like just killing indiscriminately. It's yeah. like, Cursed I really want to have sex with him, so I'm just going to. Dressed <laughs> up into a bowl so yeah, I can yeah. get, yeah. Anyways, um, there's a reflection there anyways, that the modern society and its Puritan something wants to blame everything on another, whatever, mm. whatever invisible other is. The fact that they've made such a big deal about movies and video games and music just shows that those people have no idea what they're talking about. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is my interpretation. The more I talk with you and other people, I, I, I feel bad because, you know, there's all this talk about like, find your why and like, know what your, your purpose in life is. I still don't know what that is. And I struggle with that a lot. Podcasting. I, it's podcasting. And uh, <laughs> please give me money. Um, Our Patreon site is. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. So, so I struggle with this. And so I can, it takes me a while to, I think, really fully form an impression or my own opinion on different things. But I think where I've really come ultimately to this entire question of like, is this good art? Is this bad art? Is this great for society? Is this terrible for society? Is that it just requires a dialogue to start. You hating uh, Quentin Tarantino and me. I don't hate Quentin Tarantino. I was just trying to think, think of a name. I hate that you love him so much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even love him that much. Anyway, so doesn't, we'll, we'll have a conversation before we get to 1994. <laughs> it requires there to be that dialogue here. Like, these are the reasons why this is resonant to me. Um, and I think there is no better example very recently than uh, the movie Jojo Rabbit where that has pretty, been pretty divisive with critics and actually pretty divisive, although pushing more towards the positive end in the uh, like, um, audience perception of that movie, uh, where there are some people who are like, like, I really hate this movie because of how it makes fun of a very serious topic. And the flip side of that, like, hey, this is really, this is satire. Like, this is using a terrible incident and injecting humor in it, into it to make a very specific point, which is kind of where I lay in that but that also doesn't mean that i can just like blindly push that person away who had a very visceral response to it because like hey my family or i have relatives or um i'm jewish and like this is what i felt while watching this movie i think it's still valid and i think there still needs to be that dialogue going back and forth but taking a rubber stamp and saying this is bad and it's like everyone has to think that this is also bad is kind of where it's like okay there there isn't going to never going to be a consensus on good and bad art there can only be that dialogue and whatever survives time over 15 60 50 or 60 years and we're still talking about it that's what has survived i i you know i'm certainly not an intellectual wise person so i was at uh, we've, we've been able to tell i was at my psychiatrist see all right good disclaimer and we were talking a little bit about this because i watched a video on fake martial arts and cults so, <laughs> so we'll we'll leave that for its own conversation but it's, uh, yeah. it's excellent um, but the, the essential point he left me was an interesting one. Uh, he said, when a person particularly that has fear or weakness uh, and denial hides their ego into a concept or a um, uh, sort of a descriptive, even word, then they can't ever allow that thing to be wrong. Because right. that, yeah, that yeah. destroys their sense of self. And so I think we're now in an age where so many people are so afraid of everything that like Apple... Uh, versus I uh, versus Microsoft, PC. Or, yeah. So, you know, when a person likes an Apple device, if they have this weak sense of self, then they're like, "Well, it's Apple, and I can't be wrong." And somebody says, "Well, this thing's got I don't care about your fucking RAM. I don't give a shit about you know you, you be able to open the computer out. You're just wrong." And that's something that's becoming more and more prevalent. 
I don't know, again, I'm not a scientist, so I don't know if that's more prevalent in North America versus Europe or uh, areas where they have a much longer culture and history of this actually happening over and over again. Mm -hmm. And people are just getting wiser to the fact that, well, look, uh, yeah, if you're Germans, like it's, it's not just the Nazis that, I mean, there's a thousand years of us trying in different forms to rule under different types of things and we keep falling down, getting up. And so there's going to be a little wisdom there. America seems to twist a little more maybe because we're younger. I, I don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, like you said, if we can break that thing where I have to say that, uh, an easy one for Helen and I is that I'm vegan. We were, uh, that means not necessarily we weren't prophesizing. We weren't going out and telling you to be vegan, but it was like, don't fucking show me your meat. You know, it's like, it's crazy. Like all you're doing is making yourself upset. But if we can just have a conversation and say, okay, well, you know, your food documentary says you should only, you should be a carnivore. I have this food do documentary that says meat will kill you. Uh, you know, and then there's mm -hmm. 17 other food do documentaries that are saying this. Why don't we just let it run its course, be evolutionary, uh, self-plug. I just interviewed Sasha uh, Ivanov, I think. Um, and one of the talks- On your podcast. On my perspectives. podcast, Perspectives YYC, which is apparently not searchable. Anyways, anyways um, <clears throat> he's doing uh, evolutionary computing and coding. Mm. But the quick thing about that is, uh, as I've been reading with some other history books, I've been reading, the evolutionary scale is in th in generations and not in our individual lifespan. And I think we just now are looking for answers for ourselves. Right. But so, for example, is the internet affecting? Of course, of course it is. Is there a right thing? Just let it run its course. And by the time your grandchildren's grandchildren have been there, they'll look back and say, "Well, whether uh, we tried yeah. to do something or not, that's what happened." Yeah. And then the right thing, well, the quote unquote right thing came out, and now we believe the Earth is round, and now we believe this, and that's hard to do that because I I want to be right. You know what I feel bad about? The first time I met you and your wife, me shouting, look at my meat. <laughs> well, you're full of sound bites. Yeah, <clears throat> I know. So Where I, are I, we? To, to wrap like up what we've been talking about and getting back to oh, sure. uh, Lock, Sock, and Two Smoking Barrels, that's, that's the podcast. We just go off and talk about <laughs> uh, stuff around the movie a lot of the time. I want to know, do you think that this movie still holds any cultural relevancy? Yeah, I think so. I It feels like it actually feels a bit of like a period piece, doesn't it? I mean, and the, nowadays it does for yeah. sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's the same way that we, that I at least, when I was growing up, felt about like sixties and seventies films. Like, it's like, oh, very obviously these are shot then. This is like, oh yeah, this is a nineties film that I'm watching. You know, I just had this other thought. I, I was at a talk with uh, with one of the more famous uh, uh, photographers here in Calgary, George Weber, and, and he made an interesting comment about uh, photography, and he said. Um, if you get, if you take pictures and you do a lot of posts and you create, uh, you know, different effects, mm -hmm. that is more dating than a photograph that's just left uh, essentially untouched. And that from a documentarian perspective. And so when you look at, let's say a movie from the seventies, if it's something that's shot simply and gritty, it becomes kind of like a period sort of a yeah. reflection of where it is. But then you watch something that's like disco and whatever, it becomes very hard to watch again because it's gimmicks and it's played out and we're not identifying with whatever the fad right. was at the time. I have a sense that for me, looking back at Guy Ritchie, Lockstock, kind of like Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs, or I mean, maybe even Pulp Fiction, before they get too polished, yeah, there's yeah. some like... There's something there. Yeah, there's something yeah. more connected to where they were and what their original, more childish intents might have been. And then once you get so polished, it, it, it becomes date, more dated somehow. Like, I think it is true. I mean, it's the same way I, I somewhat feel about uh, Jaws. So 
Steven Spielberg had made movies before that, but that was like his first like big movie that came out. And it's like, you watch that now and I still love it, but it's like that shark really isn't convincing (laughs) except for one scene. It's not deep blue scene, but, but, but by and large, it's like, that's a rubber shark. But what sells that is literally great actors and the phenomenal guy behind the camera telling like, this is how I need this film to be shot. Like there was that artistry that was there. And so even though it's like not as slick necessarily as what even Jurassic Park would be, I still rate Jaws higher just because there is, I don't know, there's something to that. I like to see the edges maybe a little bit of the creation. You hear Um, that, George Lucas? Yeah. (laughs) I want my squares back around the TIE Fighters. Mm -hmm. Right? I mean, that's what made, eh, okay, well stopped. I don't know. Is there anything else that we want to say about Lockstock here? I mean, I, I, we didn't really talk much about the, the film in and of itself. I just think it's an, an effective uh, heist, like kind of cops and robbers type movie, although it's really only the, the robbers that we see. We're not really in, in the, the cops area. Without watching Snatch again, the one thing that struck me that I really liked about this movie is how he plays with time. So I mentioned at the beginning, like, you know, slowing down the frame rate to introduce yeah. characters. But even like the Bernie man running out of the bar and then we yeah, learn yeah. about, and then we'd learn about it later. Yeah. Um, sequencing like uh, Barry and, and the gun heist to bring the guns into the final sort of sequence. Um, there's just a lot of slick writing by intent or by edit. I don't know. I, you know, those things are very difficult to, yeah. to, to understand. Uh, from, from what I've heard, like people who finance this film and help give it money were influenced because of the idea behind it and how Guy Ritchie sold it. Uh, because the people who read the script was like, um, this is formatted probably there's spelling errors all over the place. This is not good. Uh, but how you say you're going to do this totally, we want to see that movie. So what do you think you'd rate this movie? Mm. This of course will go into, um, the spreadsheet I'm creating, but this is something that you can also view over on our letterboxed profile. Uh, there will be a link to that in the description, but it's just letterboxd.com slash KDVSTM. I'm just thinking, will the machine be jealous of your laptop? You play a lot more on the laptop with your fingers than you do with the machine. Uh, there's a Bluetooth connection between the two of them, so it feels everything. Gross. I think, uh, you know, I'm going to go with the full four. Oh my God. Or I don't know. No, it's, this is a thing. This is we've been talking about this off mic about how aligned we are all the time. Yeah. I also gave it a four. <laughs> okay, now let me change but no fuck. You know what we need to do? Two. It's a two. <laughs> <laughs> I don't give it I loved it. I'm giving it a two. Yeah, I have to give it a four. Okay. Well I'm giving it a four two, which averages to four, if I'm if I'm doing my math right here at least. So that puts Lockstock currently in the number two spot. Ooh. of the films that we've watched currently in 1999. And like I said, you can go to our letterbox and actually take a look at the full list of movies that we have we have seen. But this is eight movies. We have eight movies now on that list. It's been a long eight weeks. It has been. Eight weeks we've been doing this. So hard to keep up to the date. <laughs> uh, right? Yeah. It's, it's a good thing that the machine is recording all you know, this Sometimes life. it feels like February. Sometimes it feels like March. But who can tell, really? It's, it's pretty warm, <laughs> frankly, I'm, pre- I'm presuming. That's right. Uh, <clears throat> do you want to hear some trivia? Yep. All right, let's push this button. Let's find out some trivia. Oh, a lot of writing here. Okay. Uh, so this movie was dedicated to Lenny McLean. At the very end, it says, like, dedicated in loving memory. 
Uh, he is the actor who played Barry the Baptist oh. inside the movie. He died of cancer um, one month before the movie debuted. Oh, wow. Yeah. Apparently, he learned about it while he was filming the role. Oh, wow. That he had cancer and he passed away within a few months. Is, did he used to be a wrestler? He looks like a wrestler, doesn't he? Uh, he does, doesn't he? Yeah. I, I feel like he at least would be one of those people who like did bare knuckle boxing or yeah, something yeah. at the carnival. Reminded me a little bit of George the Animal or something. Is that nice fine. Uh, on Vinnie Jones's first day of filming, he had just been released from police custody. So he had been arrested for beating up his neighbor, which seems very, like a very Vinnie Jones thing to do. Yep. The film was having some trouble finding an American distributor when Trudy Styler, she was a producer, uh, called an acquaintance of hers, Tom Cruise. Uh, he attended a screening and loved the film. Matthew Vaughn later recalled it was hysterical. You had all these mid-level executives sitting there and Cruise walks in. He saw them all sit up and pay attention, all getting on their phones, and suddenly all these senior executives join the screening. At the end, Tom got up in front of everyone and said, this is the best movie I've seen in years, and you guys would be fools not to buy it, and then walked out. Onto so, the side of a plane, which he, <laughs> he, he rode out. raffled onto it and be like, take me to Portland. <laughs> Actually, no, it's like there. 98, so he just ran. He just ran oh, yeah. all the way did back. Did the Tom Cruise <laughs> run, like, without, not even sweating. He just, like, did the Fuck. Tom Cruise run. I love Tom Cruise. I know. <laughs> I know. I mean, I'm getting over, under overtones of Scientology all over this thing, but, oh, mm -hmm. fuck, I love Tom Cruise. Uh, quick thing, Vinnie Jones was also, I'm pretty sure, kicked out of playing professional soccer for beating up people. For beating up people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's great. He's the hooker Is with the heart of gold. Really? Hooker like, with the heart of gold. Know. You know, he, he crushes a man's head for touching his, for threatening his son. Spoiler alert. Yeah. Spoiler alert. So talking about uh, roles, Jason Fleming is the person who plays Tom in this movie. And I thought it was weird while watching it, how the characters are constantly saying how fat he is. Right. Even though he's like super skinny gentleman. So here's why. Stephen Marcus, who plays Nick the Greek in this movie, was originally cast as Tom. <laughs> so Nick the Greek is a little bit of a portly man. Yeah, yeah. So that's why every character talks about him as if he's fat. It's great. He's left it in the script, which I actually think is kind of funny. It works so much better. It's kind of the same thing as like an alien, right? How Ripley was originally written as a man and they just didn't change any of the dialogue and just let her go and stuff like Female that. Female empowerment. So whatever. It, it might have actually been designed that way. Smart um, Ripley. Madonna liked the film's soundtrack so much that she contacted Guy Ritchie and Matthew Vaughn and asked if her label, Maverick, could release the film's soundtrack in the U.S. Ironically, Ritchie said that she wined and dined them in Hollywood a few times, but it was, that it was Vaughn she was romantically interested in first, not him. Mm. So what could have been? Could have been Matthew Vaughn who made Swept Away instead of <laughs> Guy Ritchie. I don't even know her. So that is Lockstock in Two Smoking Barrels. Um, I think uh, I think we did some good work here. I think it's been a couple of weeks here since we've had a good film that we got to watch. It's exciting. Again, it's not reinventing the wheel. One thing that I've been kind of being a bit annoyed with as far as discourse goes is it seems like people think this is also my own bubble. I'm going to fully admit to that. But people seemingly think there has to be some like greater thematic point to entertainment that we watch uh otherwise it is bad and i kind of reject that notion that can make it great uh but i think you can just have a fun movie just be a fun movie <laughs> and i think that's what this is i don't think it's trying to be anything deeper than it being what it is and i think that's why i love it so much is that it's 
it is what it is. It literally is just what it is. I, I agree with that. I think that there's people that uh, can only read biographies and world history books, and mm -hmm. there's people who love fiction, science, or otherwise, and fantasy, and they're equally nerdy because they read books. That's right. You can't distinguish it to... They're all poindexters, <laughs> and I no. push them over and grab their lunch money. Um, but the people that I generally write good fiction anyways, and that's very judgmental, are people mm. who are literate and learn in the world. Whether that translates, I mean, I, we could revisit 8mm in this light. I, I think we did in that conversation. Whether it translates well onto the screen is the film industry's mm. effect, but um, you don't need to walk out of theater and just be weeping about like, I'm not doing enough. <laughs> Fuck. You know, you can come on and just feel good about yourself. I know. There's yeah. only so much uh, entertainment I can watch and be like, you're right, I, I am terrible. <laughs> <laughs> we're all screwed. Uh, all right, let's find out what we're watching next week. Uh, oh. No. This is weird. No. This is the first time I think the machine has done this. We're watching a movie that was actually released don't, this week. Don't say it. We get to watch Cruel Intentions. Fuck! <laughs> <laughs> I recall being titillated when I watched this movie back in university. I guess we'll see if it... Uh, Holds up at all. Uh, like I mentioned earlier in the show, if people want to get in contact with us, you can send an email to Kyle and Dave versus the machine at gmail.com. We're also on both uh, Twitter and Instagram at KDVSTM. So I don't know. What are you going to do until next week, David? Med a lot of meditation. <clears throat> you you went completely silent there for a minute. Ashen almost, I would say your face is. Um, do a lot of centering. I think I need to not think. Until we get there. This is what gets me through the day sometimes. Think about Ryan Phillippe's ass. Just think of... I haven't seen it. Uh, <laughs> I guess not yet, technically. Yeah, how, does, right. how is podcasting work? <laughs> <laughs>